Chapter Two, Part Three of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter Two: The Beginnings of American. Part Three: New Words of English Material. But of far more importance than these borrowings was the great stock of new words that the colonists coined in English metal, words primarily demanded by the new circumstances under which they were placed, but also indicative, in more than one case, of a delight in the business for its own sake. The American, even in the early eighteenth century, already showed many of the characteristics that were to set him off from the Englishman later on his bold and somewhat grotesque imagination, his contempt for authority, his lack of aesthetic sensitiveness, his extravagant humor. Among the first colonists, there were many men of education, culture, and gentle birth, but they were soon swamped by hordes of the ignorant and illiterate, and the latter, cut off from the corrective influence of books, soon laid their hands upon the language. It is impossible to imagine the austere Puritan divines of Massachusetts inventing such verbs as to cowhide and to log roll or such adjectives as no account and stumped or such adverbs as know-how and lickety split or such substantives as bullfrog hogwallow and hoe-cake but under their eyes there arose a contumacious proletariat which was quite capable of the business and very eager for it in boston so early as sixteen twenty eight there was a definite class of blackguard roisterers, chiefly made up of sailors and artisans. In Virginia, nearly a decade earlier, John Pory, secretary to Governor Yardley, lamented that, in these five months of my continuance here, there have come at one time or another eleven sails of ships into this river, but frighted more with ignorance than with any other merchandise. In particular, the generation born in the New World was uncouth and iconoclastic, the only world it knew was a rough world, and the virtues that environment engendered were not those of niceness, but those of enterprise and resourcefulness. Upon men of this sort fell the task of bringing the wilderness to the axe and the plough, and with it went the task of inventing a vocabulary for the special needs of the great adventure. Out of their loutish ingenuity came a great number of picturesque names for natural objects, chiefly boldly descriptive compounds, bullfrog, canvasback, lightning bug, mud hen, cat bird, razorback, garter snake, groundhog, and so on. And out of an inventiveness somewhat more urbane came such coinages as live oak, potato bug, turkey gobbler, pokeweed, copperhead, eelgrass, reed bird, eggplant, bluegrass, peanut, pitch pine, clingstone, peach, moccasin snake, june bug, and butternut. Live Oak appears in a document of 1610. Bullfrog was familiar to Beverly in 1705. So was Jamestown Weed, later reduced to Jimson Weed, as the English Hurtleberry or Hortleberry was reduced to Huckleberry. These early Americans were not botanists. They were often ignorant of the names of the plants they encountered, even when those plants already had English names. And so they exercised their fancy upon new ones. So arose Johnny Jump-Up for the viola tricolor, 
and basswood for the common European linden or lime tree, Tilia, and locust for the Robinia pseudocachia and its allies. The jimson weed itself was anything but a novelty, but the pioneers apparently did not recognize it, and so we find them ascribing all sorts of absurd medicinal powers to it, and even Beverly solemnly reporting that some soldiers, eating it in a salad, turned natural fools upon it for several days. The grosser features of the landscape got a lavish renaming, partly to distinguish new forms, and partly out of an obvious desire to attain a more literal descriptiveness. I have mentioned key and hook, the one borrowed from the Spanish and the other from the Dutch. With them came run, branch, fork, bluff, noun, neck, barrens, bottoms, underbrush, bottomland, clearing, notch, divide, knob, riffle, gap, rolling country, and rapids, and the extension of pond from artificial pools to small natural lakes, and of creek from small arms of the sea to shallow feeders of rivers. Such common English geographical terms as downs, weald, wold, fen, bog, fell, chase, coom, dell, heath, and more disappeared from the colonial tongue, save as fossilized in a few proper names. So did Bracken. With the new landscape came an entirely new mode of life. New foods, new forms of habitation, new methods of agriculture, new kinds of hunting. A great swarm of neologisms thus arose, and as in the previous case, they were chiefly compounds. Back country, backwoods, backwoodsmen, back settler, back settlements. All these were in common use early in the 18th century. Backlog was used by Increase Mather in 1684. Log House appears in the Maryland Archives for 1669. Hoe Cake, Johnny Cake, Panfish, Corn Dodger, Roasting Ear, Corn Crib, Corn Cob, and Popcorn were all familiar before the Revolution. So were Pine Knot, Snow Plow, Cold Snap, Landslide, Salt Lick, Prickly Heat, Shell Road, and Cane Break. Shingle was a novelty in 1705, but one S. Simmons wrote to John Winthrop of Ipswich, about a clapboarded house in 1637. Frame house seems to have come in with shingle. Trail, half-breed, Indian summer, and Indian file were obviously suggested by the red men. State house was borrowed, perhaps, from the Dutch. Selectman is first heard of in 1685, displacing the English alderman. Mush had displaced porridge by 1671. Soon afterward, haystack took the place of the English haycock, and such common English terms as buyer, muse, weir, and wain began to disappear. Hired man is to be found in the Plymouth Town Records of 1737, and hired girl followed soon after. So early as 1758, as we find by the diary of Nathaniel Ames, the second-year students at Harvard were already called sophomores, though for a while the spelling was often made sophimores. Camp meeting was later, it did not appear until 1799. But land office was familiar before 1700, and sidewalk, spelling bee, bee-line, mossback, crazy-quilt, mudscow, stamping-ground, and a hundred and one other such compounds were in daily use before the Revolution. After that great upheaval, the new money of the Confederation brought in a number of new words. In 1782, Governor Morris proposed to the Continental Congress that the coins of the Republic be called in ascending order, unit, penny bill, dollar, and crown. 
Later Morris invented the word cent, substituting it for the English penny. In 1785, Jefferson proposed mill, cent, dime, dollar, and eagle, and this nomenclature was adopted. Various nautical terms peculiar to America, or taken into English from American sources, came in during the 18th century, among them schooner, catboat, and pungi, not to recall bateau and canoe. According to a recent historian of the American Merchant Marine, the first schooner ever seen was launched at Gloucester, Massachusetts, in 1713. The word, it appears, was originally spelled schooner, S-C-O-O-N-E-R. To schoon was a verb borrowed by the New Englanders from some Scotch dialect, and meant to skim or skip across the water like a flat stone. As the first schooner left the ways and glided out into Gloucester Harbor, an enraptured spectator shouted, Oh, see how she schoons! A schooner let her be! replied Captain Andrew Robinson, her builder, and all boats of her peculiar and novel fore-and-aft rig took the name hereafter. The Dutch mariners borrowed the term and changed the spelling, and this change was soon accepted in America. The Scotch root came from the Norse skuna, to hasten, and there are analogues in Icelandic, Anglo-Saxon, and Old High German. The origin of catboat and pungi I have been unable to determine. Perhaps the latter is related in some way to pung, a one-horse sled or wagon. Pung was often widely used in the United States, but of late it has sunk to the estate of a New England provincialism. Longfellow used it, and in 1857 a writer in the Knickerbocker magazine reported that pungs filled Broadway in New York after a snowstorm. Most of these new words, of course, produce derivatives, for example, to stack hay, to shingle, to shuck, i.e. corn, to trail, and to caucus. Backwoods immediately begat backwoodsmen, and was itself turned into a common adjective. The colonists, indeed, showed a beautiful disregard of linguistic nicety. At an early date, they shortened the English law phrase, to convey by deed, to the simple verb, to deed. Pickering protested against this as a barbarism, and argued that no self-respecting law writer would employ it. But all the same, it was firmly entrenched in the common speech, and it has remained there to this day. To table for to lay on the table, came in at the same time, and so did various forms represented by bindery, for bookbinder's shop. To tomahawk appeared before 1650, and to scalp must have followed soon after. Within the next century and a half, they were reinforced by many other such new verbs, and by such adjectives made of nouns as no account and one horse, and such nouns made of verbs as carryall and goner, and such adverbs as know-how. In particular, the manufacture of new verbs went on at a rapid pace. In his letter to Webster in 1789, Franklin denounced to advocate, to progress, and to oppose, a vain enterprise, for all of them are now in perfectly good usage. To advocate, indeed, was used by Thomas Nash in 1589, and by John Milton half a century later, but it seems to have been reinvented in America. In 1822, and again in 1838, Robert Southey, then Poet Laureate, led two belated attacks upon it as a barbarous Americanism, but its obvious usefulness preserved it, and it remains in good usage on both sides of the Atlantic today, one of the earliest of the English borrowings from America. In the end, indeed, even so ardent a purist as Richard Grant White adopted it, as he did to placate. Webster, though he agreed with Franklin in opposing to advocate, gave his imprimatur 
to appreciate, i.e., to raise in value, and is credited by Sir Charles Lyell with having himself invented to demoralize. He also approved to obligate. To antagonize seems to have been given currency by John Quincy Adams. To immigrate by John Marshall. To eventuate by Governor Morris. And to derange by George Washington. Jefferson, always hospitable to new words, used to belittle in his Notes on Virginia, and Thornton thinks that he coined it. Many new verbs were made by the simple process of prefixing the preposition to common nouns. For example, to clerk, to dicker, to dump, to blow, that is, to bluster or boast, to cord, that is, wood, to stump, to room, and to shin. Others were made by transferring verbs in the orthodox vocabulary, for example, to cavort, from to curvet, and to snoop, from to snook. Others arose as metaphors, for example, to whitewash, figuratively, and to squat, on unoccupied land. Others were made by hitching suffixes to nouns, for example, to negative, to deputize, to locate, to legislate, to infract, to comprite, and to habify. Yet others seem to have been produced by onomatopoeia, for example, to fizzle, or to have arisen by some other such spontaneous process so far unintelligible, for example, to tote. With them came an endless series of verb phrases, for example, to draw a bead, to face the music, to darken one's door, to take to the woods, to fly off the handle, to go on the warpath, and to saw wood, all obvious products of frontier life. Many coinages of the pre-revolutionary era later disappeared. Jefferson used to ambition, but it dropped out nevertheless, and so did to comprit, that is, to compromise, to homologize, and to happify. Fierce battles raged round some of these words, and they were all violently derided in England. Even so useful a verb as to locate, now in perfectly good usage, was denounced in the third volume of the North American Review, and other purists of the times tried to put down to legislate. The young and tender adjectives had quite as hard a row to hoe, particularly lengthy. The British critic attacked it in November 1793, and it also had enemies at home, but John Adams had used it in his diary in 1759, and the authority of Jefferson and Hamilton was behind it, and so it survived. Years later, James Russell Lowell spoke of it as the excellent adjective, and boasted that American had given it to English. Dutiable also met with opposition and moreover it had a rival, costumable. But Marshall wrote it into his historic decisions, and thus it took root. The same anonymous watchman of the North American Review who protested against to locate, pronounced his anathema upon such barbarous terms as presidential and congressional, but the plain need for them kept them in the language. Gubernatorial had come in long before this, and it is to be found in the New Jersey archives of 1734. Influential was denounced by the Reverend John Butcher and by George Canning, who argued that influent was better. But it was ardently defended by William Pinckney of Maryland and gradually made its way. Handy, kinky, law-abiding, chunky, solid, in the sense of well-to-do, evincive, complected, judgmatical, underpinned, blooded, and cute were also already secure in revolutionary days. So with many nouns. Jefferson used breadstuffs in his report of the Secretary of State on Commercial Restrictions, December 16, 1793. Balance, in the sense of remainder, got into the debates of the First Congress. 
Mileage was used by Franklin in 1754, and is now sound English. Elevator, in the sense of a storage house for grain, was used by Jefferson and by others before him. Draw, for drawbridge, comes down from revolutionary days. So does slip, in the sense of a berth for vessels. So does addition, in the sense of a suburb. So, finally, does darkey. The history of many of these Americanisms shows how vain is the effort of grammarians to combat the natural processes of language development. I have mentioned the early opposition to dutiable, influential, presidential, lengthy, to locate, to oppose, to advocate, to legislate, and to progress. Bogus, reliable, and standpoint were attacked with the same academic ferocity. All of them are to be found in Bryant's Index Expurgatoris, circa 1870, and reliable was denounced by Bishop Cox as that abominable barbarism so late as 1886. Edward S. Gould, another uncompromising purist, said of standpoint that it was the bright particular star of solemn philological blundering and the very counterpart of Dogberry's non-cum. Gould also protested against to jeopardize, leniency, and to demean, and Richard Grant White joined him in an onslaught upon to donate. But all of these words are in good use in the United States today, and some of them have gone over into English. End of chapter 2, part 3. Recording by Todd.